Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for your love and care for us. We ask you to guide us and lead us as we look at your word and see what you would like us to do for you as we go through each day. We ask your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah chapter 58. This is kind of an interesting chapter. God starts out being very critical of what the people are doing, even though we would look at it and say they're doing a good thing. And God says, no, it's not what I want. So we're going to be looking at this and starting out at verse 1. Cry aloud, spare not. Lift up your voice like a trumpet and show my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as a nation that did righteousness. And forsook not the ordinance of their God. They ask of me the ordinances of justice. They take delight in approaching to God. Where have, wherefore have you, we fasted, say they, for you see not? Wherefore have we afflicted our soul, and you take no knowledge? Behold, in the day of your fast you find pleasure and exact all your labors. Behold, you fast for strife and debate, and to smite with the fist of wickedness. Ye shall not fast as you do this day, to make your voice to be heard on high. Is it such... A, a fast that I have chosen, a day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head as a bulrush and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and an acceptable day to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I have chosen, to loose the bands of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens and to let the oppressed go free, and that you break every yoke? Is it not to deal your bread, bread to the hungry and that you bring the poor that are cast out to your house. When you see the naked, that you cover him, and that you hide not yourself from the, your own flesh. So we're going to look at this, and God is rebuking the people. They're doing part of what he says, but they're doing it for show, basically. And so it says, Cry aloud and spare not. Lift up your voice like a trumpet and show my people their transgression in the house of Jacob my sins. So this is the call to Isaiah. God says, shout out. Be very loud. Cry out and spare not. He goes, don't, don't withhold. Lift up your voice like a trumpet or the shofar. It's so that it's loud. It, bring, it brings attention. God's saying, Isaiah... Let my people know their transgression. And this is the job of the leaders of the people, the leaders of the church, the leaders to cry out and say, you're, you're not walking right with God. All right? And so Isaiah is given this. He goes, and then verse 2, he says, Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as a nation that did righteousness, and forsook not the ordinances of their God. They asked, me of, uh, asked of me the ordinances of justice. They take delight in approaching God. This is kind of an interesting thing. It's, it's interesting because God says that they're delighting in seeking him out, but they're doing it for the wrong reasons we're going to find out. It's the person who comes to church to be seen. And maybe even enjoying coming to church and being seen. 
and so that they can say, well, I, I, did, my, I did my duty for God. All right? And it says they've, they've called out for ordinances or rules. <laughs> you know, man likes rules, and yet doesn't like rules. We like to know, here's the rules. This is what I need to live by. And God is saying they're doing everything right, but then in verse 3 we see how this changes. Because they say, wherefore have we fasted? You know, and, they, and you see not. So they're going, God, we're fasting, and you're not taking notice. You know, it would be, we prayed, but you're not taking notice. We've come to church, and you're not taking notice. Uh, I'm giving my tithes and offerings, God, and you're not taking notice of me. Because they're not doing it the way God wants it done, from a whole heart. Uh, and our goal is not to serve God to get blessings. <laughs> If that's, our, if that's our goal, God says, you got your blessing, you, you, you got what you wanted, you were seen. Uh, he says, why have we afflicted our souls and you take no knowledge? You know, God, we've, we've given up. We've, we've given up what we wanted. We're, we're sacrificing for you. And I don't know if you've ever heard anybody say, you know, well, I've, I've given up so much for God. Well, if you really had given it up for God, you wouldn't have lost anything anyway. And you wouldn't be noticing that you'd given up anything. And you wouldn't be talking about what you'd given up because you were serving God in the first place. You know, and this is a temptation sometimes for people that give tithes and offerings and, and time to the church. Satan will come along and say, well, you're just wasting your time. Nobody notices. Well, God notices. And this is where we come in down to it, is why do we serve God? Are we serving him so that we get noticed? Or are we serving him out of the love that we have for him just to serve him? And this is where when we help somebody, why are we helping somebody? To get congratulations? I was talking to a man today. He was going to go do something. I'm going, well, why are you doing it? He goes, well, I don't know. I'm trying to, I'm trying to get repentance. I'm going, well, just repent. Don't do what you're trying to do to get noticed for your repentance. You know, and this is something that happens. It's human nature. God, if I do enough, maybe you're going to notice me and forgive me. And here's Isaiah coming to the people and saying, no, you're not doing these. Because you are fasting. You are doing without. But now you're complaining that God's not noticing your sacrifice. And we've all done it at some point in our life. You know, that we've given up. We've, we've taken out these things. He's, but he goes, behold, in the day of your fast, you find pleasure or delight. And he, you're seeking after good things. Now, I know the few, when I fast, which is not very often, but when I fast, I'm not going out looking for what, what is in it for me. I'm putting my soul before God and saying, God, I'm looking for an answer. And fasting it can be short, can be long. Uh, I've done a long fast before. It's after after about uh, six days, you hardly notice that you're hungry anymore for for a while, and then you get hungry toward the end of it. <laughs> when when you get when you get into day thirty, you get hungry. <laughs> but uh, but why do you do it? Are you seeking God, or are you just trying to to do whatever? And I draw an attention to myself. Jesus told the, the Pharisees and scribes, he goes, if you're fasting and doing without, clean your face, don't look like you're miserable. 
He goes, if you're looking at, walking around miserable telling everybody, oh, I'm so hungry, I'm fasting, then you've got your reward, you haven't sought God. And so if you're fasting, people shouldn't know it. If you're doing without something, people shouldn't know it. Now, unfortunately, there has to be some time when you may, you know, if you're doing a long fast and it happens to be the same day, the same week that the church is having a potluck dinner, you know, you do as little as you can to draw attention to the fact that you're not eating and you may not have, you may not decide not to go, you know, so that you don't draw attention to it. But, you know, we look at this and it says, why are you doing this? You're, you've got a clenched fist, he says, when you're doing it. You're, you're looking to do violence. He goes, you're finding pleasure. And he says, you're exacting all your labor. In other words, you're getting all your work done, even though you're not supposed to be doing all this work. And, and they were saying, we're doing everything. We're doing everything. We're drawing attention to ourselves. Uh, behold, you fast for strife and debate, <laughs> which is kind of interesting. Strife. You're, you're, not, you're supposed to be humble and you're supposed to be in, uh, but he says you're doing it for controversy and contention. You're, you're, you're fasting and you're arguing and fighting with everybody. Uh, not being very godly, in other words. And this is what God is asking us to do. When we serve him, it is to serve him and not to be drawn attention to, not to, not to cause problems, not to be strife, uh, he says, you smite with the fist of wickedness. You, you shall not fast as you do this day to make your voice to be heard on high. So he says, you're fasting and your goal is so that you will be seen. That people will say, oh, look how righteous that person is. Look how good they are. That's what the scribes and Pharisees and Jesus were doing. Oh, look at me, I'm fasting. And not only did that, Jesus complained, complained that they loved to stand on the corners and pray out loud and so that people would know that they're praying. Now, their prayers weren't being heard beyond, beyond, their, beyond them, but, but they just wanted to make, here's, here's me, look at me, look at what I'm doing. And if our goal is, look at me, God says, no, that's not what I'm looking for. Everything we do for God needs to point to God. If it's pointing to anything but God, it's not him. And he says, you're doing this to make your voice to be heard on high. Verse four, the end of verse 4. So he says, you're doing all this stuff for show. You're doing it to be seen. And this is something that's very important. And it can be very difficult to serve, especially as God starts raising you up in, in a church or, and people respect you. You know, and they start giving you praise for the things you're doing, and you've got to be very careful now. Am I doing it now for God like I used to? Or am I starting to do it because I'm getting praised for doing it? And it can be a very interesting place. And then you have to walk a very fine line as people are saying, you did a good job, you did wonderful, and you know, not to start taking it as yourself and just stay on here. And God's going, you're doing all of this stuff to be seen. So you will be lifted up. You know, you will get a reputation, <laughs> you know, as a righteous person. You know, the sad thing is, in our day and age, people aren't looking for a reputation as a righteous person very often. But uh, in that day, they were still looking for that reputation of being the righteous person. And he says, you're, you're doing it for... And then verse 5, is it such a fast that I have chosen? So God is saying, is this what I wanted? 
God had told his people there were times when they were to fast and that they were to praise God and they were to celebrate and there were times when they were to, to afflict themselves and humble themselves. But God is saying, is what you're doing what I asked you to do? You know, because God was not looking for them to raise themselves, themselves up. A day for a man to afflict his soul you know, or humble his soul. Part of when God said that we were to afflict ourselves was to remember our sinfulness and remember what God saved us from. And there's times for that. As long as we're not going into, into a condemnation for it, we do need to remember that God has forgiven us of much. Because if we don't, then we get self-righteous. And we, and we start looking at ourselves as being better than other people. And God wants us to always remember that we're really not all that great. <laughs> you know, and in reality, we're not. And, and we need to keep that in mind. And it gets harder and harder. The more God changes us, sometimes we start getting to this place where we might think, you know, God, you know, you're so, you're so lucky you have me. I don't, I don't do, you know, list off a whole bunch of sins, you know, and, and I'm just doing, you know, you're so good. It's so good that I'm, that I'm yours. And God's saying, you're not all that special. It's me who's done whatever you're doing anyway, if it's of any value. And, you know, and they're saying, you know, that there is a place for this. Uh, is it to bow down your head as a bulrush to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? You know, bulrushes get, can, if you on a good wind, will bend all the way over. And he says, are you to bow down, even, even if you put your nose on the ground and you're bowing, is that really what I'm wanting? You know, is it that you're going to be sitting on sackcloth and ashes? Now, all of these things in the right place, done the right, play, done the right way, can be good. Uh, it's been a long time since anybody in our, in our nations have done sackcloth and ashes. And even in that, he says that they spread it and sit on it. <laughs> okay, they're not even wearing the sackcloth and ashes, they're sitting on it. So they're not even doing that much. And he says, will you call this fast an acceptable day to the Lord? Right? You're, you're sitting on your sackcloth and ashes. You're not wearing it and sprinkling on. You're, you're just bowing as if the wind was blowing you just like the bulrushes. You're uh, not doing the right things. And God says, am I going to call this acceptable? And this is the interesting thing. It's rhetorical. God's saying, you know it's wrong. And he says, Isaiah, remind them what they're doing and then tell them, am I going to accept this? We tend to like to try to worship God our way. Oh, God, I, I know you want me to do such and such, but I'm just going to do things my way. And what is our way? Whatever causes us the least pain possible. When God gives us a trial in our life, we tend to push back and say, God, uh-uh, don't want that. And God's saying, this is how I'm coming to bless you. Are you going to bow down and humble yourself? Are you going to accept what I'm sending your way? And yet we fight it off. Over and over again, we fight it off. And this is something that's very important, learning to surrender to God and saying, God, I'm going to take whatever you send my way. And we're going to, we get to the end of this chapter, it's beautiful how God talks about the blessing of acceptance of his trials. And, but he's saying here, you're, you're, you're pushing it away. You're pushing it away. Uh, and then, in case they didn't really know what God says, now he defines what he says a fast is. Verse 6, Is not this the fast that I have chosen? 
to loose the bands of wickedness, the bondages, the fetters of wickedness, to let go of evil. Now this is not, and this is important for it because God is letting, understands that we are bound. Sin binds us and condemns us. Jesus died on the cross so that we could have victory and have those bondages taken off of us. And he says, so the first thing he says what's going to get is to loose the bands of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens or the yokes of burdens on us, and to let the oppressed go free and that you break every yoke. This is important for us. This is what God says is true worship. We get rid of wickedness in our life. We break the bands of it, and only he can really do that. And then we undo the heavy burdens of others as much as ourselves. We as Christians love to want to have all the freedom from our burdens and, and put as much burden as we can on other people. We need to be so careful of that because, number one, we don't want to be burdened down, so we shouldn't be burdening other people down. But, you know, that all comes down to is the oppressed are to go free. Those that are in slavery and bondage, they're to go free, and God wants the yokes broken. How does he do that? In Christ Jesus. Jesus said, come unto me, all you that are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He says, bear my yoke. My yoke is easy. All right? Why? Because a yoke puts two things together, two animals together, and then what they have told us is that one yoke went on the stronger animal, and they did most of the work while the other one just walked alongside. And when Jesus talks about the yoke, he's, he says, my yoke. He says, I'm bearing the weight. You get the light side. You just get to walk alongside of him, and he will bear the burden if we let him. Now, if you don't want to let him, you go fight against that yoke and you pull on it and you try to get ahead of him and you're, and you're trying to pull the weight of it, it doesn't work. He says, break those bondages, break every yoke. And this is important for us to understand. The love of God frees us. And he says, I want your burdens. Uh, Peter tells us, cast all your cares on him for he cares for you. God wants all of our cares. He wants all of our problems. He wants all of our burdens. And he says, I want to give you rest. In Psalm 23, he says that he will lead us into green pastures. He will bring us into shade. He will bring us to still water. And one of the things about that is still water. Sheep are so dumb that if they're, at the, if they're drinking water and a leaf drop goes by, that they'll follow the leaf and fall over. You know, it's not really complimenting. God calls us his sheep. He's not complimenting it at all. Uh, and he goes, you're just like the dumb sheep. And I, I've told you about my friend. We went to his house, and there's a little tiny hill in his yard, and the, one of the sheep got behind the hill and, and panicked because it couldn't see the other sheep. All he had to do was take two steps from behind the hill and he would have seen everybody. But my friend had to get up from our, from our prayer time and study and go lead the sheep out from behind the hill so that he could see the rest of the sheep. All right? God calls us sheep. He's not given us any, any blessing. 
Sheep is the only animal that must have mankind to survive. They're that dumb. Every other animal can survive on its own, uh, mostly. But sheep have no defenses and are so stupid that they can't get along without somebody taking care of them. And God calls us sheep. Why? Because he knows we're stupid, can't defend ourselves against the enemy, and needs somebody to take care of us. So he goes, you're just like the sheep that I created that needed you. And you need me. Uh, and we're, saying, we're looking out there, and he says, you know, this is what I have chosen, you know, that you... Let's go back to where I was at. Loose the bands of wickedness, undo the heavy burdens, and let the oppressed go free. We need to forgive those who are under bondage. Help lift, those care, lift off the bondage from them. This is important because God is saying, he's done it for us, we need to do it for others. And what do we like to do in many cases? Dump more, dump more pain on them. You deserve what you've got. If you just didn't make so many bad choices, you wouldn't have. Well, yes, that is true. If they hadn't made so many bad choices, they wouldn't have the consequence they're, leaning, they're living under. But my job is not to go add more pressure under consequences. My job is to encourage them and tell them that God has the answers for them and say, let's try to help you through your problem. Knowing that I can't lift all the, all the consequences off them, but my job is to loosen up the bondage. The lost person is under bondage. They are a prisoner of war to sin. And it, the sin has them under full control. And our job is to let them loose, to give them freedom, to get out from that prisoner of war camp into the freedom of God and rest. He goes, you're also to go out. And is it not to give bread to the hungry? Do you, you should help the poor that are outcast from your, from your house or near your house or, or downtrodden. You know, how do we look at the people that are downstricken? Well, you deserve what you got. You know, I don't know what you did to deserve it, but you deserve what you got. That was most, uh, Job's friend's attack on him. Job, you obviously were very bad. You've gone from being the richest man into the world to the poorest man that I've ever seen. You must have done something terrible, awful. Now, granted, most people have done things that deserve it, but not everybody has done things that deserve it. It is just a set of circumstances that put them where they're at. You know, but even if they deserve it, it's not our job to criticize and make it worse for them. Our job is to reach out and help them. We've given food boxes at the church to people that it's obvious that they, they did things that caused their problems, but that's not our job. Our job is to show them the love of God and try to get them to come to God through that love. You know, when I'm counseling, that may be a different story. You know, you know, but I'm still gonna love them before I start accusing them of anything. I'm gonna find out what they've done, where, where they're at. And even then, I'm not going to accuse them. I'm going, these are the consequences for what you've done. Now, let's change, let's change and come to God. And that's our job as Christians. Love people and get them to turn to God. Because it is his, his love that's going to draw them. It's not going to be his holiness that draws them. The holiness re repels us, even as Christians sometimes it repels us if we're not living in a right manner with God. We're going, uh-uh, don't want to be anywhere near that. And this is what happens if we're living in sin. 
we don't want to be anywhere near this book. We don't want to be anywhere near the people of God because that brings conviction. And his holiness and his righteousness, like, ugh, you know, I don't want to get anywhere near that. And yet God says, come, come, draw, learn. And we should draw, and this is what I tell us over and over. When we are in sin, we need to draw closer to God, not get further away. Because it's his love and his mercy that will draw the light and tell us what we're doing wrong. But yet, over the years, I've seen it happen. You know, people who sit at the front of the church start sitting in the back of the church, and before long, they're sitting outside the church. Okay? And they're not listening online or on the radio. They're just outside the church. Why? Because their sin, they let their sin drive them away from God instead of embracing God's forgiveness. And this is important. Gentleman that I've been talking to, he's so broken by his sin, but he won't repent and let go of it. He feels like he's being forsaken by God because of his sin. And it's like, you've got to get hold of who you are in Christ. You know, you've got to accept and surrender to him and let him change you. Pay attention to what God has done in your life. You know, this is important for us because I share this all the time. If I'm only looking at the bad in my life, I'm going to miss all the good. Yeah, David, uh, uh, Moses, Abraham, yeah. Jonah, <laughs> Peter, <laughs> Paul, and that's just the thing about it because of our of our sin. Our sin will really reveal God's love for us and that I'm nothing. And God still loves me and uses me. It's just an amazing thing. And we look at, you know, David, a murderer, adulterer, a liar in so many cases that caused people to die. You know, all the pains that he caused people and yet God used him. Moses, extremely angry man, so much so that he killed an Egyptian he gets mad at the people over and over again. He gets so mad, he breaks the Ten Commandments. Okay. Uh, if you were going to not break anything, it wouldn't break the, the, the thing that God wrote. Granted, I understand why he got mad. His temper got him in trouble. So much trouble that he didn't get to go into the Promised Land because of his temper. Abraham, God's favorite, you know, God's favorite, who called out of him lied twice about Sarah being his sister. Well, it's not technically a lie. She was his sister, but, but he was also, she was also his wife. He did it to save his, save his skin. And God still loved him. Jonah runs away from God. God, te- God forces him to go to the city. He, re- he preaches a message, and the entire town gets saved. And he gets up on the hill waiting for God to destroy them. Yeah, and Christ, because they got saved. <laughs> And says, well, I knew that was what you were going to do, so I didn't want to come in the first place. So we see this whole thing, and, we, and Peter, like we say, you know, had a terminal case of foot-in-mouth disease. He kept putting his foot in his mouth everywhere, and then he denies Jesus, and yet he's still one of the chief, chief leaders of the new church. Paul goes out and kills Christians, and God uses him to be the leader to reach the Gentiles. God says, it's all me. In ourselves, we can do nothing. In Christ, we can do anything. And this is the important thing here that God is saying, I want you to turn to me. I want you to learn and lean on me. Take care of the poor. Take care of the needy. He goes, 
And then it just kind of an interesting thing at the end. He says, we're to feed the hungry, to clothe the naked. And then he says, and you hide not yourself from your own flesh. Take care of your family. Okay? Take care of your family. That should be a no-brainer. But there are a lot of people who don't take care of their own family for whatever reason. You know, mom and dad have never liked me. I'm not going to help them. They never, they didn't, they never appreciated anything and, and helped me. You know, uh, my kids have been nothing but trouble. There's no way I'm going to help them. God says, don't hide from your family. Take care of them. Help them. Now, that doesn't mean to take and help somebody who is totally going to be nothing but a sponge. We have many 50- and 60-year-old kids who need to be kicked out of home, all right, because they're not being helped, and they're actually taking advantage of their, their family, and they need to be kicked out. Now, if they need to be at home, that's one thing. If they've got some handicaps and needs and that they can't get over, keep them. If they're addicted to drugs and alcohol and they're just plain lazy, out the door and make them, make them earn, earn some kind of living. But, you know, he's saying, don't hide yourself from those that are in need. Jesus went to the, to the scribes and Pharisees, he says, you guys are getting so bad that you're saying that, that this is Corbin, which meant dedicated to God. I can't give you anything. I'm using it while I'm alive, but I can't give anything to you because it belongs to God. I can use as much as I want because it all goes to God when I die. There won't be anything left when I die, but, you know. But, and God says, you're breaking this very rule. You're not taking care of your family that needs the help. And we need to be able, you know, and God is looking at us and saying, are you caring for the weak? Are you caring for those who need help? Now, granted, if you know somebody who's just plain being lazy and not working, don't help them. Because if you're helping them, you're not helping them. You're just teaching them to be lazy. God's way of feeding the, the, the widows and the orphans, if you remember, he told the farmers, you're not, to, you're not to cut all the way to the corners of your field. You're not to glean your fields and pick up every grain of grain and grape that dropped. Why? Because the poor are going to get their food. And what did that mean? They had to get up off their butts, <laughs> go to the field, and pick the leftovers. And God says, work is important. Handing people checks is not the way to help them. Teaching them to work, giving them the ability to work, helps them. And our government is not looking for that as our solution anymore. They're getting away from God's. Now, even, even in, in the days of Israel, you had some farmers who cut that corner as close as he could possibly make it. And he goes, okay, I left you one foot of one foot of standing grain, and then you had others that were just being generous, and they left a huge swath and said, here, go in, go in and get all you want because I'm taking care of the poor because I know that's what I'm supposed to be doing. This is what Isaiah is saying. People, you're not taking care. You're not, you're not even not only not taking care of the, the poor, you're not even taking care of your family. This is a pretty serious accusation for this to be the case. Now he says... Then, what is the then? You've dealt with the, the poor. You're helping the poor. Then shall your light break forth as the morning, and your health shall spring forth speedily, and your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your re-reward. You shall, then shall you call, and the Lord shall answer. 
You shall cry and he shall say, here am I. If you take away from the midst of the yoke, the putting forth of the finger, the speaking vanity, and if you draw out your soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul, then shall you shall your light rise in obscurity and your darkness be as the noonday. And the Lord shall guide you continually and satisfy your soul in drought and make fat your bones and you shall be like the watered garden and like the spring of water whose waters fail not. And they that shall be of you shall build of the, of the old places and shall rise up the foundations of many generations and you shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of the paths to dwell in. What happens when we be obedient? We help people that need help. We reach out, we help our family. God says, then your light shall break forth as a morning. You want to be known? You want to have a reputation? Which is what light often talks about is reputation and doctrine. Because you want to be known? Goes be known for the right things. And then you will be lifted out of obscurity. That is the whole idea of dimness and unknown. And your health shall spring forth speedily. And your health shall spring forth and your righteousness shall go before you. God has a way when we bless others to return that blessing upon ourselves. This is something we reap what we sow, good or bad. So when we help others, we get. And the, the idea is we cannot outgive God. And I've said this many times, we can't outgive God. When God asks for us to give something, we're not going to be able to get, give, outgive him. When the disciples said, we've given up family and, and, and houses, and God says, you haven't given up anything. Jesus told me, you haven't given up anything. When you've given it up for me, you're going to get more. You, you give up your, your earthly family, and God gives you a spiritual family. And then oftentimes gives you back your earthly family. When people have been rejected because they follow God by their family, and they pray for and they talk to, they get number one, they get the church family. And then God oftentimes... As, he, as the Philippian jailer was told, come to Christ, you and your family shall be saved. And it's not a promise that everybody in your family will be saved, but it is really wonderful to watch. As you're a good testimony for, for Jesus, you watch your family get saved. One after the other, they start getting saved. Now, does that mean every single one of them is going to get saved? No. I wish it was. Because I've got family members I really want to see saved. But... We live it up according to God, and we watch them respond. One of the greatest ways to witness is lifestyle evangelism. I live in a way that is different, that reaches my family and my coworkers, people who know me get, that works really well. The only problem with lifestyle evangelism, we have to open our mouth once in a while and also talk. You know, it, it's good to draw people, but eventually we have to give them the gospel. All right? Uh, our life should draw them, should be, you know, they should see enough change in us to say, I want what you want. And there's lots of people I've had that happen to over the years. They're going, I don't know why you're so different, but I want what you, I want what you have. Can you tell me how to get it? And I go, great, let's tell you how to get it. Now, have they always even then wanted it? No. 
Some have, some haven't. You know, but we have to, when they come up and ask, we need to be ready to speak. But we also need to speak to people because not everybody's going to know us well enough to see lifestyle evangelism. And we reach out and he says, your light shall break forth in the morning, your health shall spring forth, and your righteousness shall go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Re-reward is your rear guard, the protection in the back. What a beautiful thing. I serve God. He elevates me. He puts my righteousness going before me, and he guards me. What a beautiful picture. I'm not in this alone. Now, I'm not doing it to get all these things, but when I do it, I'm going to get these things. And it's one of those fine lines where, God, I know this, you're just going to bless me. And yet, I don't want to give just so you're going to bless me, but I know that he's going to bless me when I give. It's a, it's a kind of a strange way to look at it. God, I'm going to give, you're going to give back, and I never lose out. God, you want, you want how much of my time? You want how much of my money? You want how much of my, my possessions? You want how much of my food to go to where? All right, God, let's, let's go for it. Yeah. It's an amazing thing to watch God reward and give blessings back. Even if he doesn't give them to them, yet right that moment, he'll give it to you when you do need it. You know, God, I don't know why I'm doing this, but I'm going to give freely, and the next thing you know, you need a few things, and it's freely given back. And we see that he is our guard. He says, and then another then. <laughs> All right? He's going to say, I'm lifting you up out of obscurity. He says, verse 9, Then you shall call, and the Lord shall answer. You shall cry, and he shall say, Here I am. You know, isn't, isn't that wonderful? We call out to God, and he's not saying, Well, I'm hiding in the back room. You haven't, you haven't come far enough to see me. He says, here I am. God is with us always, ready to answer, ready to help. We just have to be bold enough to ask him <laughs> to help, to, to seek after him. And then he says, another if. If you take away from the midst of you, of you, the yoke. We, we're trying to lift the bondages off other people. Okay? We take from the midst of us the yoke. All right? So we're helping others take their burdens off them. That's where we, with the whole nakedness and the feeding and all of that that he was talking about. And then he says, and the putting forth of the finger, pointing at him judging them, all right? Put it put away, because we're still in, we have a comma there, so we're still in the put away. So we put away the pointing of the fingers and, and chastising and, and, and judging and speaking vanity, all right? So here's some things we can do. Three negative things he says to take, get away. We take away the burdens of other people. We take away the judging of them and we take away speaking empty words. That's probably the hardest of the three, the, the speaking empty words. How many times do we hear people give counsel that is worldly counsel that's empty, not godly, 
They're not edifying. They're not building up. They're judging people. They're building, you know, not only are they not taking away the burden off them, they're adding to the burden on them. Oh, this, your, your, your yoke isn't heavy enough? Let me, let me add a few pounds of weight onto the, onto the yoke for you. And God says, no, take it away. Lift it off of them. Bring them to the cross of Christ so that burden can be lifted off. And then he gives us a couple of positive things that we're to do. Verse 10, and if you draw out your soul to the hunger, hungry, have compassion. You know, and this is really critical. When we see people that are truly in need, are we compassionate to them? Or do we turn our eyes away in hard-heartedness? Now, this is one place that's very hard. When you see all the people panhandling, how many of the panhandlers actually have a real need? I don't know. My answer when I lived in Sacramento to so many people, because I lived in that area, yeah. and they go, I don't know whether I should give to these people. I go, do what God tells you to do. Well, what if it's wrong? I'm going, you give with the right heart, God's going to bless it. Now, if you're just giving, trying to get noticed or to, because you feel like you have to, now you're giving for the wrong reason, and you want to be careful. He's not saying give to everybody because we can't. And we think about this. A lot of people will say Jesus healed everybody. No, he healed everybody that came to him desiring to be healed, and he didn't heal every single person because the man that sat at Gate Beautiful that Peter and John prayed for in Acts 3 sat there for years. Jesus had to have passed him several times going into the temple and never healed him. All right, so Jesus didn't heal everybody. Jesus didn't take care of every need of every single person out there. He did it when God the Father said, this one's to help. So our job is to help those when God says to step out. And who knows who we're helping? The Bible tells us many have helped angels, have entertained angels unaware. Sometimes it may just be a test. God's saying, are you willing to help this person? If, if you're feeling led to help somebody, help them. But you never know whether that kindness might have done something as well. So we don't know. So we, the, the key on this is listening to the still small voice of God and deciding. But he says, if you've drawn your soul to the hungry and you've satisfied the afflicted souls, then shall your light arise in obscurity and your darkness shall be as the noonday. What does this mean? In the middle of your trials, God will bring the light. In your darkness will be as the noonday. God is there. This is the beauty. We take care of others, and when we're in need, God will be right there. And when we're going through hard times, God will be right there. Why is it easy to go through so many things when you're right close to God? Because you know he's in charge, and you know that he's there, and he is bringing them the light. And there are times when God will let you bring in the light into a situation and all of a sudden you say, uh, this isn't the right thing to do. This person doesn't need help or this person's trying to manipulate. And there's been times when I've had people trying to manipulate me and all of a sudden God just shines the light on and it's like, oh, no, we're not going anywhere near this one. You know, there's other times I've fallen right into it because I'm not where I'm supposed to be in the first place. But you know, God says... Our darkness shall be as the noon day. God is right there guiding us, 
lighting our path and saying, I am your shepherd. I am your keeper. And the Lord shall be your guide, will guide you continually and satisfy your soul in the drought. You're helping others. God says, you're pouring out to others. I'm going to pour back to you. You know, and this is the important thing. We're not giving so that God gives back, but God does give back. He goes, you've helped all these people. You've helped these people that didn't need it, but you were doing it with the right heart. He says, God will say, I will return it. All right? If I'm foolishly giving my money away, I go, I know that this person doesn't need help when I'm helping them, then I'm not being a good steward. But if I'm helping somebody that needs it, or I even think needs it, God says, I'm going to give you back. I am going to take you. And he goes, he will guide us continually, which is the first thing, first one of his promises. He will satisfy our soul in the drought. So when, we're, when we are in a hard place, God says, I am your satisfaction. I will make fat your bones. Now, this is kind of an interesting term because he basically is saying, I will make strong or I will build up. You know, I will give you your essence. Have you felt the strength of God in times of trial? Where God just says, I'm coming alongside of you. I'm, I'm holding you up. I'm supporting you. People go, I don't need a crutch of God. You know, I'll take God as my crutch any day of the week. It's better than all the other crutches I've ever had. You know, for me to depend on God is great. He doesn't demand a great payment back. You know, the people whose crutches work, they, get, they sacrifice their family, they sacrifice their life, their health, and it never gives back. God just comes up and says, I'll support you. I, I, I want to support you. You use your crutches alcohol, alcohol demands a whole lot. You know, so God is saying, I will support you, and you shall be like a watered garden. Now, we all know, especially here in the desert, if we take care of our gardens and we water them, they grow. They grow. Sometimes they grow more weeds than, than the plants, but they grow. That's Adam's fault. <laughs> That's Adam's fault, yes. Yeah. And you will be like a spring of waters whose water does not fail. If you've ever been around a spring that just keeps bubbling water, hasn't rained for for years, but that spring is still bubbling forth water and giving water. This is what God says. You shall be like a spring. Now what does this do? If you are producing this water, you're a spring of water, you're the oasis in the desert, people seek that oasis. Because you've got something they don't understand. You've got water, you've got living water, you've got Jesus Christ. But you have life. This is what water represents, is life. And he says, because you have honored me, I will give you the living water. And people will be drawn to you that are thirsty. This is why Jesus spoke to the woman of Samaria and said, if you knew who I was, you'd ask me of the water that will make you never thirst. We have that water, and we want people to want that water. And this is what he says, you know, to us. And you shall build the old waste places. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations and you shall be called the repairers of breaches, the restorer of the past to dwell, to dwell in. You 
this should be our reputation as Christians, that we are looking to build up and to repair. You know, our job is to take lives that are broken and help them come to wholeness. That gets them into the God's word, drawing them toward God, because he's the only one that can truly make it. But our job is to draw them to him, you know, to love them so much that they want that restoration. And then we get known as the ones that get to restore it. <laughs> it's kind of, God, is, I've said this over and over, God's plan is great. He does all the work, we get all the credit. Even in this world, we get the credit. You know, wow, I love coming to your, to your house and listening to you talk about God and the Bible and encouraging me. I love, you know, have you ever had people that just like being around you because they feel good being around you? You know, we're not a sourpuss. We're not a drag. We're not bringing them down by being around us, but we're bringing God into their life and they're leaving encouraged. They're leaving with joy. Hopefully that is the testimony that we have with people. We are just so encouraging. You're so kind. You're bringing joy. It's a joy to be around you. Now, that doesn't mean that there won't be discipline. It just means that it's done in love. True discipline and true love will bring discipline. And all true discipline has to be done in love. And I've shared this, you know, our job is to, to work with one another and to share. When we see somebody not going in the right direction, we should be saying they're not going in the right direction, but we better have enough love that we've been praying for them first. And usually our prayers will be enough. And if it's not, then we use our words with them and we do it lovingly. I am concerned about you. I've been praying for you and I've seen some things that are bothering me and I just feel I have to share them with you. Not, you're a terrible, awful person. Get right before, you know, get right. You know, that somebody might respond to that, but not very many people respond to that kind of, kind of uh, attention. We are to be learned and known as repairers. You've got a foundation that's broken You've got walls that are broken down. Let's fix, them. Let's fix them up. Let's help you come and grow. That is what I hope I'm known for as pastor of this church, is getting people lovingly to correct their life and to move forward with God. Could I be one that comes down and hammer on people? I know the Bible well enough to hammer if that was what it was, but that's not going to win people. You know, am I going to share that people are sinners? Yes, absolutely. Am I going to say these are lifestyles are sinful? Yes, I'm going to say that. But I want to say it as much as possible in love and kindness and be known as a restorer. Somebody that's edifying and building people up. I don't want people to feel like they've been beat up when they come to church. You know, they're going to feel beat up anyway. I want them to know that they were loved as they get beat, as they feel that. Not, because God is going to convict. He's going to convict us of our sin. There have been plenty of times when I have sat in on a message or listened to a message on the radio and said, okay, God, I've got it. You know, especially when the, same pastor, when the pastors keep talking about the same thing for three, four days in a row, and it's not just one pastor, it's every one of the pastors on the radio that all got together to plan their, plan their week of messages just to get me. Yep. <laughs> you know, granted, I know that there's a bigger planner in, involved, you know, and I know that people have said the same thing about my messages, you know. You know, what? it was just what, you know, you must have been really knowing, having me in thought. No, I hadn't thought about you at all. Most of the time I'm thinking about myself as I'm studying these words. 
you know, but he says we're to be known as restorers, to edify, to build up, and to and restoring something can hurt, you know, to, because you have to break away the rest of the rubble and then you have to put the new piece in. You know, it, it's not an easy job to fix things. As a matter of fact, fixing things is harder than starting brand new in most cases. Uh, went to a repair shop one time. He goes, "This is my price for doing a job. This is my price for correcting <laughs> what you did." <laughs> so. And, and what he's saying is it is harder to fix somebody else's problems and their mess. Verse 13, if you turn away your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy days, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy of the Lord, honorable, and shall honor him, not doing your own ways, not finding your own pleasures, nor speaking your own words, then you shall be then shall you delight yourself in the Lord, and I will cause you to ride upon the high places of the earth and to feed with the heritage of Jacob your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. This is a beautiful statement that he's making. If, so this is conditional, if we turn our foot from the Sabbath Turn, turn away from your foot from the Sabbath. In other words, honor the Sabbath. It's kind of a funny way to say it, but he's saying honor the Sabbath. And you, from doing your own pleasure on his holy days, so I'm turning from doing my own thing, which is not honoring God during that day. And you call the Sabbath a delight. This word for delight is a beautiful word. It is luxury, dainty. You know, how many people, and we've seen people move away from the day of rest because they don't want to honor God. They don't look at it as being a luxury that God gives us. In the Truth Project, Bill Tackett said that when God gave us the Sabbath day, it was to give us a day just to focus on God. And as he said, quit playing in the sandbox because you were enjoying what you were doing. Because when God told him to do this, he said, in the very first book of the Bible, in Genesis, he says, the seventh day God rested and he told man to rest. One day in seven, man was to stop playing in the garden, playing at work, and rest and focus on God. And God is asking us just one day, one day a week, rest and focus on him. And that just doesn't mean rest and watch TV. It doesn't mean sit around at home just listening to the to the radio, it means rest and focus on him. The whole day. Yeah, not just the morning, morning hour at church, but the whole day of rest. Now, when he gave the law, it went so far as to say you weren't to light a fire, you weren't to cook, you weren't to clean, nobody in your house was to work, which is ultimately what God wants us to do is literally rest. Just take time to focus on him and not, not do things. Oh, we as Gentiles all do because it's never been a big part of our life. But you know, psychology tells us that we have to rest. If we do not rest, we will burn out. No matter how well you like your job, love your work, if you do not take time to rest, you will burn out. And this is why rest is important. And God tells us that it's important. He says, if you will do those things, 
and not find your own pleasure during his, during his Sabbath, nor speak your own words. In other words, be talking all day long. He's, he's still not asking us to talk the whole day. Okay. When he says rest, he means rest. He says, then, you sh then shall you delight yourself in the Lord. My luxury is in the Lord. And I will cause you to ride upon the high places of the earth and to feed you with the heritage of Jacob. The idea of riding in the high places of the Lord is this idea of riding above the problems. All right? God literally means, when that word for ride is to put on the, the burden, a beast of burden, to ride on a horse, or in one particular, to ride the eagles above the storm. He goes, you're going to be above the burdens. You're going to be above the problems because God says, I am lifting you up. You know, he lifts us up. Deuteronomy 32.13 uses this same term, to ride above. Habakkuk 3.14 uses that same term, to ride above what's going on. Psalm 18.33 says the same thing. In Isaiah, he told us that we will live, be lifted up on the wings of eagles above the problems and be really riding on high. We're not even riding a donkey. We're riding, we're riding above everything. You know, and this is the greatness about when I serve God, when you serve God, and we put our pleasure and our trust in him, he hides us in him and takes us above and beyond the storms. And we get to watch the storms like the eagles do, flying above the clouds. Deuteronomy 32, 13. He takes us above the problems. He takes us up through and he puts us in a safe fortress as the problems beat on him and not us. And we just get to smile at them. Well, Satan, you've got that problem of attacking me. Okay, you keep attacking God for all you want. I'm just going to smile at you as, you as you attack him. Not that they go away. He takes us above them or he hides us in him so that we're not... And my point is, like, this building's built out of cinder block. This building can handle just about any storm that came against it. All right? If it had just right, it could hit the windows and everything. But theoretically, this building would stand you know, during the worst storm. Now, earthquakes could take it out, but nothing would take God out. And we're hidden in him. He's our fortress. He's our strong tower. He's our deliverance, so he hides us. And then to take it to the next step, he takes us above the storm and says, you're not even going to get to hear the storm. Eagles do not fear the storm. Why? Because they just go above the storm and fly above it. And they just stay above the storm. You know, and they go through the storm and they get above it and just fly and coast along until the storm disappears and then they come back down and God says, I'm gonna, you're going to ride above it. You're going to be above it. How do we do that? We trust him. We trust him to be our keeper, our protector. Is it easy? No, there's storms that can really throw us for a loop. Other times when we're walking with him, we go through and go, no, I'm not, not suffering anything. I'm not, I'm not seeing the pain. I'm not seeing the, the problems. And then you kind of look back and go, wow, that's a pretty big mess back there. What, what, what just happened? It's not denying the problem. It's not saying that it's not happening. It's that God is protecting us from the problem. 
And because he's in control, the problem isn't that big a deal. Job did real good with his problem until, his, until the four friends showed up. And then they really made him miserable. You know, and Satan will keep doing that. Sometimes we do really well through a problem until our friends show up and start pointing out the problem to us. You know, I'm walking in securing God and I'm not seeing the problem. Then everybody's going, wow, you're going through a lot. How are you going through all this? What, what did you do to cause all these problems? Well, I didn't do anything. Well, you must have. Otherwise, you wouldn't have all these. What problems are you even talking? They start pointing out all your problems. You know, they're trying to be helpful, I think. <laughs> but we're riding above the storm. and We're not even seeing the problem. And all of a sudden, people are trying to drag us back into the storm and point out the problem to us. We need to be so engrossed into God that we are riding above the problem, or at least, at the very least, we're so sheltered that we're not even aware of the problems. You know, you can go through a nice storm. If you're in a solid house, you can sleep through a storm and not worry about it. If you're in a cardboard box and it's raining and thundering and lightning out there, you don't want to be in, a, be in that uh, protection because it's not much protection. If God has given you comfort in it, I wouldn't worry about it. Stay where you're at. Stay, stay hidden in God. Because it says, cast all your cares on him. Most tests were, test were supposed to turn over to him as well. I can do nothing in myself. I can do all things through Christ. So I turn over all my problems to him, all my tests to him, you know, because... This is what Corinthians 10.13 uh, is about. There hath no temptation overtaken you, but such is come to man. But God is faithful who will provide a way of escape. Okay. How what is that way of escape? Him. God, I'm having a terrible test. I'm, I'm not doing well. Take this, take this test. Oh, thank you. This is what he's wanting us to hear. He wants us to turn our problems over to him cast all our cares on him, all of our problems on him, and let him walk us through the storm, take us into the secure green pastures. He prepares the banqueting table in the midst of our enemies. So when I'm going through hard times, I'm going, okay, God, it's all yours. And he says, okay, here's your banqueting table. The wolves are howling at the doors. The, the enemy is all around us, and God feeds us in the midst of our enemy and guards us because we turn it all over to him. That is what true rest in God is all about. The problem is we don't do it very often. We're going, God, I've got to, and we, we all do it. God, I've got to do something to get out of, God, you know that you help those who help themselves. It says so in the Bible. No, it doesn't say that. It's the exact opposite. Everywhere in the Bible it says, humble yourselves and turn to me. Come to me. How did the people in the, in the wilderness get healed of the snake bites? All they had to do was look at the brazen serpent that was put up. How did they get their sins covered as far as they were concerned? They went to and offered the sacrifice that God offered, said to offer. Made no sense. You're being in the wilderness and God says, okay, go out and get those seeds in the morning and you'll be fed. Well, I don't want to get up that early in the morning, God, and, and, and pick those seeds. Well, then you don't get fed today. I provided, you don't want it, I'm, I'm not giving it back to you later on. If we're not taking it, we're going to get beat up. 
And that taking it is allowing him to do it. You know, and then we're going, God, that's too, too easy. Yeah, it's so easy that most people won't do it. Because it means humbling our flesh and crucifying our flesh and turning everything over to God. I do the same thing too often. Sometimes I do it just perfectly. God, this is all yours. I can't handle this. I don't want anything to do with it. It's yours. It's the little ones that trip us up the most. God, this is just a little thing. I can take care of this one. And that's when the asp jumps out of the problem and bites us and poisons us. Uh, God, I didn't see that snake in that uh, little pile of wood that I thought I could carry. And God says, of course you didn't. That was the, that was the temptation. You thought you could do it. You know, we need to be careful. Everything we go through needs to be turned over to God. And it sounds so simple, and it is, but we won't do it. <laughs> you know, and, and because the flesh tells us, I have to do something. God does not want to do everything for me. I have got to do something. Now, God will open up doors for you to do things oftentimes. I've shared when I was living by faith, oftentimes my money came by hard work. But I didn't panic about it. God would just open doors and say, here, a phone call would go in, and I'd go find a job, and, and there, there would be this little job to do. And it would be just enough to pay to get, the, get what I needed. Sometimes God's provision is very hard work. He doesn't just say, sit on your butt and let me take care of your problems. He says, but turn your concerns over to him. And if God opens the doors and, and it means that I have to work, then I work. If he just provides supernaturally, miraculously, then I do that. Many of my jobs are supernatural jobs. It just opened up at just the right time when I needed the money, and people paid me more than I asked for because God had opened up the door. But you put our trust in him, and God will give us that blessing. He promised Jacob, and Jacob's a character because God made him promises, and Jacob being the wheeler and dealer he was, didn't even accept God. He goes, God, if you will keep your word with me, I will be your servant. And you know what? God took him up on it because he knew that he would be honest with it. And God gave him. God is not looking for us to be perfect in our desire to follow him. He's, but he says, I will lift you up out of these problems. And I keep going back to Psalm 23, you know, that he prepares a place for it in the midst of our enemies, in the midst of the trials. As we go through the shadow of the valley of death, God says, I'm with you. He goes, I prepared a table for you. Now, what is it, I, you said it, are you, are you overuse my hand with oil, the oil is to oil is Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is usually oil. And God anoints us and puts... And the thing about anointing in the Old Testament, you know, in the new, in the new, in the in our day and age, people you take a little bit of oil on their finger and, and put it, put it on your head, and then they call that anointing. In the uh, Old Testament, when they anointed you, they took a gallon or so of oil and poured it over you. All right. Now it was olive oil. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't uh, oils that we deal with. But he says, when I anoint you, it overflows. It says that when Aaron was anointed, it said that dripped down his head, down his beard, and to his toes. The Holy Spirit is our anointing, and God wants to pour so much of the Holy Spirit on us that it's dripping down from our head 
to our toes and totally covering us with the anointing of the Holy Spirit. You know, most of us think God has given us our gifts and our blessings with little eyedroppers. Okay, here's your, here's your little dropper of, of blessing. We don't really understand God's love for us. We don't understand his desire to bless us. Now, that doesn't mean he's going to give us everything, but he's also not sitting there being stingy. Okay, how little can I bless this person? He's going, oh, here, have a whole barrel of oil, Holy Spirit on you. I'm just looking forward to blessing. Most of the times, we do limit God on our blessing. All right? Because we're going, God, I don't think you love me enough to give me this much blessing. God, I'm not sure. You know, and I probably do it myself in many cases. God, I'm not sure that you want to bless me that much. How much have I not let God bless me with? Oh, probably a ton of things he wants to bless with. What does he want to do for us? He wants to open up the floodgates of heaven to bless. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean monetary. It may not even mean fame. But he's looking to bless us in great ways. How do we in America live? Well, we live pay by check by paycheck and credit card by credit card. <laughs> Let me see how much debt I can get into and I want what I want and I want it now, God, and I'm not willing to wait for you to give it to me. God has blessed me in many ways over the years with great blessings. On at least two occasions, he's given me cars. Now, have they been brand new cars? No, but they've been good cars. You know, has he, and he's blessed me in so many ways that it's, it's hard and I've tried to help others by, you know, by doing things for them. You know, helping them out. Letting God be lifted up. But God is out there wanting to bless us if we would just get out of the way. You know, our selfishness, our desire for pride. You know, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life are the three issues that we have to deal with. And that pride of life means, look what I have done. Look what I got through. And God's saying, I wish you'd just give up and let me bless you because I've got so much more blessing for you than you could ever deliver to yourself. And yet, we struggle. And most of the time, we don't even recognize it as sin because we're not sensitive enough to the fact that we are living in the pride of our flesh. God, look what I did. Look what I got. And God says, yeah, but you missed out what, what, I, what I had planned for you. When we stand at the Bema seat and God shows us this is what you could have had, you know, all of us are going to have a whole bunch of pile over there. That would, but, but his whole goal is, his whole goal is to burn up what could have or should have and hand us, hand us what, we, what, we, what we get. We, we won't we'll wipe the tears, but the tears are wiped out after the Bema seat. <laughs> we get to see the bad part. When he throws a whole bunch of stuff in there, into the fire, and out, out, comes, out, the one di- out comes out the one diamond. You know, uh, and I don't think any of us will have that little, but I mean, the, the idea is most of what we do is not, not his. So, all right, we're going to close. I went way over, sorry. Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We ask you to be with us. Lord, teach us to trust you more, to give our problems over to you more completely. 
help and guide us as we go through this week and show us what you would want us to do. Help us to share with others. In Jesus' name, amen. Listening friends, do you know God? Not just know about him. Today is the day to decide to become his child. God loves you and Jesus came to die for your sins. In Romans 3.23, we are told, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all have sinned. God says the penalty for sin is death. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We sin and deserve death and hell. However, Romans 5.8 says, but God commended his love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you so much, he died for us so that we can be forgiven and have eternal life. How do we do this? Romans 10, 9 through 8 says that if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Today is that day for you to come to God and truly know him. Do you know him? Do you want to know him? Pray in your own words like this, God, I know that I am a sinner and deserve punishment. I believe that Jesus died to pay my sins. Forgive me and help me to turn from my sins and to live for you. If you have asked this of God and truly believe you are God's child and part of of his family, we encourage you to do these things. First, tell somebody that you are saved. Second, start reading the Bible each day. We recommend starting with Ephesians and then the Gospel of John. Find a good Bible teaching church. If this is your, your day of salvation, you can contact us and we will send you a booklet to get started on your new life and are available to help you with any questions you have about the Bible. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by mail at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona 86431.